Well, good morning, everyone. How awesome, as we just sang about and as Jonathan just prayed about, how awesome is our redemption? Like, do we, <clears throat> do we think about that on a, on a, a frequent basis? Do we, do we, uh, it, does it impact our lives? Does, does your redemption in Christ impact your lives on a moment-by-moment moment basis, on a daily basis? Do we think about it in that regard? Do we operate it in that regard? Does it, uh, and I hope and pray in, that it does, does it have an impact not just on your own life but on the lives of those around you? We're starting kind of a new series uh, kind of through the summer, a series on First and Second Corinthians, uh, a church who, <clears throat> in a lot of ways, they kind of struggled with their redemption. Uh, they, they, were, they were a saved church, they had a lot going on, but, they, but, but Paul writes this first letter, and it's, uh, it's not flattering, let's be honest. Like, he really comes down hard on them in a lot of different ways, and a lot of it was is that they... <clears throat> Although they were new believers, their new redemptive life in Christ was um, in some ways really being kind of washed out by this pull to the carnal nature. A little background, uh, a little background info on the ancient city of Corinth. Uh, Kayla has a couple of pictures up there. I'll step out with you because I can't see them. But uh, the first one you'll see... This is kind of just that whole Mediterranean area, Greece. This is modern day, just a screenshot off of Google Maps. And if uh, you see Athens right there in the bottom, the capital of Greece, and then if you kind of scan to your left a little bit, you see this little tiny piece of land. Kayla's flip to the next screen, if you would. No, the next screen. There we go. That's kind of a zoomed-in shot. You see that little tiny strip of, of, of land out there, and I'm kind of getting a little feedback because I'm right underneath the speakers. But that is where not only the ancient city of Corinth is, but, the, but the, um, Corinth is still there today. Now, there's the old city, Corinth, that was destroyed in an earthquake. Uh, so there's a newer city, but, but all of that is still there. Uh, that region is still uh, happening um, it's situated on that little strip of ground um, between two gulfs. Uh, it's called an isthmus. And that little strip of land is only four miles wide. So it's no wider than it is from you know, here to our farm. Uh, just this little narrow strip of ground. That, uh, <clears throat> and it was really, um, it was really pivotable, pivotal in, that, in those ancient times. Now, that little strip of ground, there's only 30 feet of elevation difference between, from, from gulf to gulf, and the high spot in between is only 30 feet. And so, uh, it became, Corinth became this really popular uh, spot when it came to tourism, when it came to, to moving goods from, from uh, one gulf to the next. What they would do is they built a stone roadway, uh, and they would empty the ships on one side and drag the ships and then the cargo across that four miles. They built this road, this, this old stone roadway, and they would use timbers to basically just kind of muscle these things across that four miles and up 30 feet. So it's, you know, the elevation 
uh, increase and decrease is only as high as this peak on the building here probably. So it wasn't really that much. And uh, anyway, they would drag ships from one side to the next. And the reason they would do that is because it saved time, if you can imagine that, dragging ships by hand. It saved time, it saved shipping time, and it saved going down around the dangerous passage around the southern tip of uh, Penelopetes, I think if I'm pronouncing it right, which became, eventually became an island uh, only because in 1890 they constructed a canal that ran that four miles. Now, in ancient times, clear back into, you know, um, even the, the Roman leadership, they all wanted to build a canal on this four-mile stretch. And the problem was, the problem was every time they either started into it, they never had the money, or when they did have the money, their engineers, whether it was Nero, of, you know, the emperor of Rome, their engineers would say, it'll never work because you're going to flood that whole isthmus if you build a canal. Uh, and the reality... I don't know how they came to that conclusion, because we all know what? We all know that water finds its own level, correct? So if the water on one side, and it's the same on the other side, it's just going to be level across, and they had 30 feet of rise, so they had a lot of ground to work with. And eventually, in 1890, they, Greece, basically crushed through the rock, and it's all rock, four miles straight through, solid rock, and they built this canal, and it's, got, it's really tight, it's only like... Um, 25 feet wide or something. It's really narrow. So ships could go through there back in the old days, but of course now, uh, now, uh, modern day shipping, they couldn't make it through there. Uh, but it became very pivotable, pivotal in the ancient times uh, because of, of the cargo that was coming and going. And of course, <clears throat> if you owned the business, if you had the business and you owned, you know, a couple thousand slaves, which is what, how, this is how this went down. If you owned a couple thousand slaves, and you owned the business to pull those ships across that four miles, uh, you were wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. And your wealth spread. Uh, the wealth in Corinth for the day in that first century was incredible, absolutely incredible. They, the, that area was super wealthy. Uh, not only were they super wealthy, but they were super worldly. Uh, Corinth was known for its, its worldliness, its pagan worship. Uh, in the first century there, uh, A.D. of Corinth, it was a bustling, bustling metropolis. It was a shipping port, of course, as I've been mentioning. Um, in a sense, it was the center of the Greco-Roman world for this, uh, or one of the centers for this Greco-Roman uh, polytheistic pagan worship. They worshipped everything. And there was temples for this, there was temples for that, and, and uh, they worshipped everything. And of course, uh, one of the major things that we're going to get into throughout the course of this summer is uh, a lot of their, their pagan temple worship uh, revolved around sex. It did, it revolved around sex. And, and their temple worship involved uh, the, the sex trade, the sex slaves, and that was all part of what they believed. They were appeasing God by doing these things. And so it became just this, this, you know, they figured there was probably 40,000 people that lived there in the first century, and it was, uh, a lot of times it was just one big, if you weren't working, <laughs> you were a part of a big sexual orgy that was intended to be appeasing a God 
and worshiping. So I, I'll use the word pagan worship because I believe that's what it is. But that's, that was the culture of the day. And it was into that culture, it was into that, uh, that bustling metropolis that the Apostle Paul ended up in 49 uh, to 50, year 49 to 50. And Acts 18 tells us how Paul had met this Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla. You can read that in Acts 18 if you want a little context for First and Second Corinthians. But he, met, he, he <clears throat> befriended this couple, Aquila and his wife Priscilla, and he stayed with them, and he worked with them. He worked with them in the tent-making business. That's why if you hear about you know, references to the Apostle Paul being a tent-maker, well, this was a, this is a part of that. This is where that was kind of grounded. That's what they did. They built tents and sold them. And so he met them. Of course, they were converted. Paul preached there, preached Jesus there in the synagogues because there was a Jewish contingency there in Corinth. And he preached there Jesus in the synagogue to the Jews and then also on the streets to the Gentiles, converting a variety of both Jews and Gentiles to Christianity. He was there about a year and a half. So he was, he was establishing, he was going there to preach the gospel, to convert as many as he could, to help establish a church, in what really we would see is, if you can imagine this combination of cities, and I haven't been to all of these cities, so it's, for me it's, it's more of an imagination. If you can imagine the combination between New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, that would be kind of the, the general tone of the uh, culture in Corinth. And it was into that setting that the Apostle Paul goes to bring the gospel and to fulfill his calling as uh, one of Christ's apostles. And so <clears throat> that's kind of what he's up against. That's kind of what he's stepping into. Again, I said Acts 18 gives you some background to that. But he goes there to plant the first Christian church in the midst of all this chaos and pagan culture Years later, Paul would then be writing to address a few issues that he has gotten feedback about that have cropped up in this new church. There's five issues, really, if you look at the book of 1 Corinthians. There's, there's uh, five issues that Paul addresses. He addresses divisions in the church, and that's the first four chapters. The next uh, three chapters, chapters 5 through 7... Paul addresses the sexual issues of the day that are going on there. Chapters 8 through 10, Paul addresses some food issues. Um, and when I say food issues, I'm saying not food because there was a problem with the food, although there was kind of a problem with the food, but it was really more of an idolatry issue. So it's, 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 it's all of this, uh, how, do we, how do we deal with the pagan worship that's going on around us? How does it affect us? How do we navigate through it as a church? There was some concern there. So Apostle Paul dives right in and says, hey, here's the deal. Um, then he turns a corner from the food, although he uses the food as a bit of a pivot point in the conversation. And he talks about what it's like. There were some issues when the Corinthian church would gather, and there were some issues that kept cropping up. And what were those issues, and, and how could they be addressed? So he talks about the gathering. There's some Issues with gathering, chapters 11 through 14. And then he touches on chapter 15, the resurrection. There was some misunderstanding about the resurrection that needed to be cleared up. 
And then, of course, chapter 16 is kind of his final greetings. I'm giving you just a real fast synopsis, 30,000-foot flyover, as we say, into the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's open our Bibles, get your cell phones, flip to the right app, <clears throat> not Facebook. Uh, flip to the, flip, open up your Bible app. Open up your Bible if you have an old-fashioned hard copy. And let's look at this first chapter as Paul addresses the first issue that's going to start to come up. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says this, he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother. Now, quick insertion, Sothenes uh, was a, in back to Acts 18, we'll fill in some blanks there, but this guy was a synagogue leader, he was a synagogue ruler uh, that became a believer, and if I'm getting my names correct, uh, he was also kind of suffered for his conversion to Christianity, some which way, uh, scholars believe this is the same guy, some which way this guy ends up being reconnected with Paul, and the reason why Paul inserts him in here as a, as a person that's with him, is he's probably likely the guy that's doing the writing while Paul's doing the pacing and the talking. And so, uh, <clears throat> of course, being a synagogue uh, ruler, he would have, uh, a Jewish fella, he would have known how to write and uh, whatnot. So, anyway, Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ, verse 2 says, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of his opening, uh, and a very classical opening uh, statement from the Apostle Paul. He begins this letter by obviously identifying himself first and his credentials. When we write a letter, nobody writes letters anymore, I get that. So <clears throat> when you email, but nobody really emails anymore, we just text. And so when you text, it already identifies who you are. And if it doesn't, if the other person only has your cell phone number, what do you typically do? Hey, this is so-and-so. Okay, so it's a self-identification. Now, when you write a letter or you write an email, you write, you know, uh, uh, Dear Sarah, if I'm writing an email to Sarah Shook, I'm going to write, Dear Sarah, so-and-so, and I'm going to put what I want to say, and then I'm going to close with my name. Uh, the ancient way of writing was different. They identified themselves first, Whoever was with them, and then they struck into a general opening. Called to be an apostle, Paul says of himself. He identifies not only himself, but his credentials. He's called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. It's not, it wasn't a vote. It wasn't a get-together and how many people want to vote for Paul to be an apostle. It wasn't a, you know, I want to nominate Paul so we could vote for Paul. It wasn't that he was the most popular. In fact, in his very early years, Christians didn't want nothing to do with him. He was on the other team. He was the enforcer. In hockey, we use this term, and I wish I played hockey. And we have hockey players here in the back row. In hockey, we have this guy named the enforcer, and he's the guy that keeps the other team kind of honest. Am I right about that? He kind of keeps them honest about how they're playing, if they're playing too rough, you know, he comes in and starts smacking somebody around, right? If they're, if they're not playing rough, eh, you don't need the enforcer so much. How many people want to be an enforcer? You can just raise your hand. Come on, raise them hands. Oh, it's never a good deal when the preacher's wife says she wants to be the enforcer. 
<clears throat> it's going to get a little spicy today. Here we go. The Apostle Paul, he was the enforcer for Judaism. Then Christ converted him, brought him to his side, brought him to the Christian side. And he says, hey, hey, this didn't happen by the will of man. This didn't happen because somebody, you know, out there, somebody high in the faith appointed me. I'm called by God to do this. The reality is, is that we're all called. I, 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 wish, somehow, I wish somehow I could have a, an, an injection, <laughs> an injection so that we would all live on a daily basis with the sense that I'm called by God. I'm called by God. And that we, that we spend our time saying, all right, what, what is that? What does it look like? How does it play out? But if you're a Christ follower, you are called. You're called into ministry. There is no room on the bench. There's some time for healing. There's some time to regroup. There is some time, I believe, and, and I think it's appropriate that, that we that we're uh, uh, you know foundationally solid in our faith for sure. But uh, we're not called to ride the bench as believers, like the Apostle Paul. We're all called to some ministry, and he says he's called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, through the will of God. What is the will of God for Paul? That he's an apostle. We're all called in that sense through the will of God to some sort of a ministry. So what is, I mean, you're right, I have a couple questions on my notes. What's your ministry? Well, I, 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 sorry. I'm pushing that off the table you know, the stuttering aspect that I'm not sure, find out. What's your ministry? What's God got for you to do? And is it according to the will of God? It must be, that's a redundant question, it must be according to the will of God. A lot of times Christians embark on things of their own, their own pleasure, their own desire. Well, I, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to serve God and, and, and I'm going to make the best of it. Well, is it part of the will of God? Or are you just going to do what you think you want to do for God according to your own timetable, according to your own abilities, according to your own desires? Are we, are, are we playing it that way? Or are we operating in our calling according to the will of God? Now, I say this about the Apostle Paul, not to puff him up with something special. If he walked in the door right now... Uh, a lot of people would be like, e, that guy? Think about it. The Bible talks, Paul talks about himself and how much, uh, how much suffering that he endured as an apostle. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was you know, struck with a rod, he was left for dead, he gets up, walks back into the town, keeps ministering. He suffered, you know, endless whippings. Uh, this guy's physical makeup was nothing that would say, oh, let's all, you know, turn to him, not because of his appearance. But he spoke with power, and he spoke out of a sense of calling that was God's will. Of course, I mentioned, mentioned his partner here, Sothenes, mentioned in Acts eighteen seventeen. Paul goes on to say, to the church of God, which is in Corinth... The ecclesia, it's a Greek word there, 
the church. It means the called out, the community of faith, the household of God. And that's what we are here today when we meet here. We're an aspect of that. We're a, we're a, we're a portion of that. We're a portion of the called out ones, the community of faith, the household of God. The church of God, which is something good, which is at Corinth, which by all measures of ancient history is really someplace bad. You say, well, I want to serve God where it's, you know, sunflower and, and uh, you know, sunshine and, and daisies are growing and it's all good. The Apostle Paul says, hey, God wants me to go here. He wants to plant a church here, which is an awesome thing. The church of God, God's fellowship, God's household, His gathering, church of God, which is an awesome thing, which is in Corinth, a completely worldly, pagan-worshipping cesspool of culture. I, I don't know if I can make it any worse. I mean, I, I did a little historical research and studying up for this. This place was horrible socially. I mean horrible. Because of the style of their worship, their, uh, uh, scholars believe that there was such a, a, a huge medical issue with STDs because of the way that they worshipped in Corinth. Huge, huge issue. And they just stayed right at it and give them more, give them more, give them more. The church of God, which is at Corinth, something good and someplace tough. For us, we really need to come to an understanding that the tension between the church and the city is an important to understanding this letter. To mining out of 1 Corinthians what, what God has for us over the course of this summer. It's really important that we understand this tension that, that there was there. <clears throat> now, we're, I would say we're embattled in a very similar, similar scenario in our culture today. There's what they term, they use this term, culture war. Uh, a battle between uh, opposing ideas. And uh, it was very much a reality in that first century. There was a culture war going on for the hearts of men and women and kids in Corinth in that first century that's no different than today. We might be a little bit more sophisticated. We might have a lot more gadgets and gizmos. We might have uh, a different access points and, and understanding and, and some of that. But the reality is, is that the battle for the hearts of men and women in that culture war is the same as it is today. And, and it, it, it all, for them, it all flowed out of this pagan worship. And God says, that's where I want to put a church. Right in the middle of 40,000 sex addicts. I want to plant a church. Right in the middle of 40,000, they estimate there's about 40,000 people in, in Corinth in that day. Right in the middle of this, you know, metropolis that's, that's integral, people coming and going. I want to plant a church right in the middle of all that chaos. I want to plant something that's good right in the middle of something that's bad. The bottom line in this is this. Is the church influencing the city? 
Or is the city influencing the church? I'm talking both about first century Corinth, but I'm also talking about us as well. That's where the culture war was for them. And that's where the culture war is for us. So, so were they being influenced by the culture or were they influencing the culture? Are we being influenced by the culture? And then we show up on Sunday and it all looks good and we all have our you know, best outfit on, our coolest Hawaiian shirt, you know, and, and we're having a great time, we're worshiping some good songs. But are we being influenced by our culture? We must answer that question for each one of us. Where is my walk at today in relationship to the culture around me? And am I an influencer or am I being influenced? I talk a lot about influence because the influences that we open up and, and invite into our lives are huge. They should be big to us. They're definitely big to God. Definitely important to God who is influencing His people. If you're going to be influential, you better know who you are. You better know who you are. To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. That's uh, the insertion for today. That's how this makes such an impact for us today. The Apostle Paul says, not just this isn't just about Corinth as a one-off. This is about all believers about all believers, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place, stretching to 2021, the little tiny bird named Addie Washington. Paul reminds the church of who they are in Jesus. So he starts off with this typical greeting. Then he turns into a reminder. In a way, it almost feels like if you read, just read through 1 Corinthians, it feels like the Apostle Paul kind of sets them up to smack them around. <laughs> and let's be honest, there's some times where we need that. Men, there's some times where, where we need to be teed up a little bit. Ladies, there's times where you need to be drawn short. And, and the Apostle, I don't think that that's his motive. I mean, I, I don't see that. I think he's simply reminding them of who they are in Jesus so then he can speak very, very frankly to them. And so he sets, them, sets it up in this way. He reminds them of who they are in Jesus, that they're sanctified. Sanctified, set apart. Strong's definition is to make holy, to purify or consecrate, to be holy. And that they identify as a saint. Called to be sanctified, he calls them saints, which are uh, those that are holy, they're sacred. Physically, pure, morally blameless, or religious, ceremonial, <clears throat> ceremonially, ceremonially. Who's our language expert? Because it's not me. I might be skipping ahead in 1 Corinthians and talking in tongues already. Consecrated. Let's use that word. How's that? As far as the word holy. In the midst of this massive culture war, Paul is reminding the Corinthian believers of this. You're different. He's saying you're different. He sets the stage for correction 
by saying, you're not the same as everybody else. Do you understand that? In God's economy, in God's world, in Jesus' kingdom, you're different than everybody else. Do you understand that? Do you operate that way? Do you live in, with that in mind? They're different than the culture around them because they have trusted and believed in Jesus Christ. And their identity is in Him. Their identity is in Him. For every new believer, your new identity, I use this term, not from the Bible, but I think it's true. We end up with a new spiritual DNA because we trust Christ as our Savior. So your new identity, your new makeup is in Jesus. Now, Paul goes on to say, verse 4, I'm not getting very far. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, verse 7, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Step back through just a couple of high points in those few verses. For the grace which was given to you by Christ Jesus. This is a specific reason that, <clears throat> for Paul's gratitude. Everything good the Corinthian church uh, would have would be from God. And it would come to them by way of grace. It would come by, by way of God showering down on them His grace, saying, hey, I, I want to give you this. I want to give you this. Look at the, what He's given them to Him. Uh, that you were, verse 5, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and in all knowledge. He wants to give you knowledge. He's, he's showering it down. It'd be like a cloudburst opening up right outside today. We've all been waiting for it for weeks. Right? And it's just, and it's so refreshing to walk out in the rain when it's desperately needed rain. And, and that's the way God's gifting the church. He's showering down on them His grace saying, hey, here's knowledge. You need, you're going to need to understand what's going on. Enriched in everything by Him and all utterance and all knowledge. This is the effect of grace. It came by grace, but it was also the effect of grace in the life of the Corinthian Christians. The Corinthians were a rich church, as I mentioned earlier, not just materially, but also in their speech and knowledge of Christ. And they're abounding in the gifts. We'll talk about that in coming weeks. In other words, he says right here, uh, verse 7, so that you come short in no gift. That you come short in no... He's talking about the spiritual gifts. Paul's saying, hey, I don't want you to be short in spiritual gifts. I want you to be long in spiritual gifts. I want you to abound with the spiritual gifts. And, 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 and this is God's grace showering out on His people. Now that Paul had reminded the Corinthians of their position and their giftedness, he now takes aim at the issues that have been reported back to him. We're going to spend a little bit of time, we're going to spend a few weeks maybe on this idea. And it's one idea that, that puts everybody a little bit on edge when it's mentioned from the front. It's kind of one of those things that makes you go, <clears throat> when it comes to issues in the church. 
But it's one that Paul addresses, and it's one that I believe that we must address, that the church has to be solid on where it stands, teaching good theology, encouraging people, at times rebuking people. But Paul addresses this idea of division. And he, he takes four chapters to talk about division in 1 Corinthians. Four chapters. See, there's really there's five issues. There's five issues that are divisive in the church. We'll just look at a portion of the first one this, today. But the five issues that Paul addresses is leadership <clears throat> uh, in the idea of, of division. There's kind of five sub-points that he makes. The first one is leadership preference. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. It's divisive. He pivots a little and talks about power and wisdom. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 31. He talks about preaching preference in chapter 2, verses 1. Uh, <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 1 through actually the whole of chapter 2, clear into chapter 3, verse 4. He then talks about a ministry mindset uh, and, and how there was division even in that in chapter 3, verses 5 through 23. And then he ends up, he kind of closes out talking about division by talking about pride, which is honestly uh, infects all of these categories. But he kind of closes out with it in chapter 4. Now, <clears throat> one thing that's interesting about how Paul writes this letter, for each of these issues, he states a gospel solution. For each of these issues inside of, of divisiveness, the Apostle Paul, he goes not to what's most popular in the culture, or who's the, the greatest thinker of his time, or who was the greatest thinker. He doesn't go, you know, way back in history, or he doesn't pretend to go way forward in history. The Apostle Paul just simply says, I'm going to take you right to, in each one of these situations, in each one of these aspects of being divisive in the church, I'm just going to simply point you to the gospel, because the solution is in the gospel. And so we're going to look at that as we go along. Let's dive back into it while everybody's holding their breath. Verse 10 says this, Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, so this is where the information is getting back to uh, the Apostle Paul, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say to you that each one of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, Peter, or I'm of Christ. Then he asks these redundant questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? He's getting them to think of how stupid, if I can use that word in church, how stupid the division of leadership preference really is. Is Jesus divided because you guys all want to pick your favorite leader? Uh, is, you know, is he divided? Were you baptized into my name? You were baptized into my name. He goes on to say in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. Lest any 
lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I don't know whether I baptized any other. Now we'll get to that point here in a second. The last point. But to kind of review this, the Apostle Paul, uh, who was a man of authority because he was a man under authority, and he had authority in the church, and he had the right and the authority to command the Corinthian Christians to pretty much just say, stop it. He could have came in with this letter and just said, stop being divided. I'm telling you this because I'm an apostle. I'm appointed by the will of God. Stop what you're doing. And sometimes we need a stiff word like that. Let's be honest. You know, the old Bob Newhart psychology. <laughs> Why are you sinning? Just stop it. Just stop it. He doesn't take that particular route, even though he had every right to take that approach. Now he says, I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Those are his words. Those are his words. He had the right to pretty much command them and the Lord to do thus and so. Rather, he says, I'm pleading with you, brethren, not for my own sake, not for the sake of even the church, but by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pleading with them on behalf of God's reputation, on the behalf of the gospel, on behalf of all of who Jesus is as the, the, that first century church followed Christ. He's pleading with them in that regard, saying, hey, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's not have any divisions. The ancient Greek word there for divisions is schismata. Although we derive our English word schism from the Greek word, it does not really mean um, a party or a faction. It properly means to tear or to rend. We kind of get the idea that, that, that schism means a, there, there, there's a fraction in a group. There's this group, and there's that group, and there's this group, and that group. The reality is, is when there's divisions, though, if you go to the root of the word, it means that they're tear apart, and this group's tore apart, and that group's tore apart, and there's no unity in the body. I think this is what the heart of Paul and why he was pleading with them to simply say, stop doing what you're doing. Just quit. His plea is that they stop ripping and tearing each other apart in the body of Christ. It's an ugly thing. Uh, let's be honest. We've all probably experienced, unless you're a brand new believer, we've all probably experienced heartache and pain of church division. I know I have. I have from the standpoint of being in leadership and having the wheels fall off. And I will tell you, my biggest regret is some of those times. My biggest thing that, that if there's something that keeps me up at night or sits on my mind real heavy is the people that, that, that were collateral damage, not the people involved uh, in, in the tension, but the people that are collateral damage, the people that were on the fringe, the people that were there trying to figure out what's God all about? Who is Jesus? How do I follow Him? I'm not sure if I want to trust Him. It's going to take a little time. And, and pretty soon church division comes and those people get washed down the drain. That sits heavy on me. I'm just going to be honest. 
And I have very specific people in my mind that come to my mind that I pray about in that regard. And it's heavy. And, it, and it's, it's honestly, let's just be real frank, it's why a lot of men don't rise up to church leadership because they don't want to have to face those possibilities or those potentials. That's a whole other subject that we'll get to at a different time. But the reality is there's a tearing and there's a ripping and Paul saying, please stop doing this. He goes on to say there, there's a phrase there, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The contrast to divisions is to be perfectly joined together in how we think and, 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 and what our assessment of the situation is. And that's not very culturally popular today. This is an aspect, and I'm going to, through this whole series, I'm going, to compl- I'm going to continue to point back to these skirmishes in the culture war. And let's, let's be honest, in the bigger context of a war, and then there's battles, and then there's skirmishes inside of those battles, this is a skirmish that happens all the time. And the temptation is to think, well, we think differently, that's okay, it's not important, and that's not true. Our culture says you're free to be a free thinker. Whatever you think you want to believe in, or however you think you want to address an issue, or believe in this or believe in that, that's good for you. It's good for somebody else to do something totally different. Paul says not in the church. That we have to have the same mind. We have to have the same judgment on these things. We have to come to the same conclusions. Things that really matter. Contrast to divisions is to be perfectly joined together, as he says, and to be in the same mind, same judgment. Instead of being torn apart, Paul pleads that they would be joined together in that same mind and that same judgment. What they were struggling with fleshed itself out in this idea that there's contentions. The Corinthian church suffered under the quarreling and conflict, this conflict has been made them <clears throat> divided up into parties or cliques, and each party having its own leader, its own popular guy. It's it, the, the guy that everybody points to, the guy that everybody relies on to solve the issues, or the guy that's, the, you know, uh, uh, that's the guy we're going to quote, that's the guy we're going to follow. Whatever he says, that's what we'll do. And all of these guys that Paul mentions, except for Jesus, who's the head of the church, but all of them are serving Jesus as leaders in the church, as apostles. But there's contentions because people are looking at their local leader rather than Jesus, the head of the church. Paul's goal for all churches is that... Paul's goal for all churches that he stated would be that they would have a unified, be a unified group pushing against the cultural norms, uh, and they would do it this way, with the love of Christ and the power of God. With the love of Christ and the power of God. Now, there's a few extra verses when we talk about unity that are great uh, reference points. Ephesians 4, uh, therefore... And the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, the Apostle Paul talking to the Ephesian church, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Another great reference that uh, nobody rides the pine in Christianity. 
Verse 2, he says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The sense of unity comes out of the fact that God is in us working for an end. He's working for an end. And he does that through his people. And, he's, and he wants his people to be unified in the mission. Unified in their relationship. Unified in, their, in how they uh, interact with one another in the midst of a pagan culture. Philippians 2 is another great one. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, if any of these things are with you, he says to the Philippian church, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. One mind, one accord. And of course, because I've been studying through Psalms for quite a while, the sh- one of the shortest Psalms, I think the shortest Psalm, came to mind because it starts right off as David says this, Psalm 133, Behold how good it and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. That's clear back from King David. That's clear back in, in, in ancient, uh, I don't know if you'd say ancient, but Jewish history. He says in verse 2, it's like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down to the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. Unity is a God thing. Unity is a God thing. God wants unity amongst His people. It's all through the pages of Scripture. God wants unity amongst His people. It's a God thing that we should always be promoting, protecting, and fighting for. Uh, Unity can be looked at this way. It's like the vitamins for the church. It keeps our spiritual immune system working well when it's needed the most. If, if a church is doing really well and there's no division and we have a tendency not to think about unity because we already have it, so it's not really an issue. It's like taking your vitamins. You don't need them when you're healthy. But you need them when you start breathing in, you know, the flu virus. <laughs> it's the same way for the church when it comes to unity. By the time you really need it, if you don't, you know, if you're not promoting it, you're not going to have it quick run through, back through those scriptures. I'll do them in reverse order. Unity is this in Psalm 133. It's a a blessing. And as he kind of, David portrays this idea of the oil flowing down through the beard, that's a picture of anointing. So unity is both a blessing and it's an anointing from God. It can't be underlooked. In Philippians, unity is hard work because unity is heart work. Unity sometimes is really, really hard because it's heart work. It's heart work between two people that can't agree, two people that see something differently. 
two people that have a different view. And those are only things that God can do in the midst of two believers that don't get along too well. Unity is hard work because it's heart work. The solution there in Philippians 2 that Paul tells them, it's best described as being selfless. I would propose that any two people that don't get along, the faster they can empty themselves, the faster they can put their pride and their you know, ego aside to resolve their, the faster they will resolve their issues. It's hard work, it's heart work, and the solution, Paul says, is an example that he gives to the Philippian church, consider others better than yourself. It's selfless work. From Ephesians 4, church unity is a result of living and embracing our calling in Christ as a way of life. It's not just when we show up here. It's every, every single day. It's how you live your life. It's how you uh, uh, both present yourself. It's how you talk about issues in the church and in Christianity. It's how you, uh, you know, talk about the ups and downs. Unity is, is, is so important. Paul says here, he says, <clears throat> it's a result of living. So it's a fruit, really, in a sense, of living out our calling. That's why our calling is so, under, so important. And it's long past time that Christians quit thinking of calling for those that are just someday going to be in ministry. Way, we're way, we should be way past that. But we have kind of circled the drain for the last several hundred years around this idea that when it comes to calling, well, that's just those who are going to be a pastor, preacher, those who are going to go into ministry as an occupation. And then we leave it there, and then they're over, they're over there, and the rest of us are, you know, peons in the pew. That's not the biblical view of calling at all. That's why I talked about it in, in, from the very get-go, Paul's opening remarks when it comes to calling, and he'll talk about it some more in a little bit. In the context of first, <clears throat> the first century church in Corinth, Paul is adamant that the church quit dividing over petty differences and who their favorite leader was, who baptized them, so on and so forth. And Paul's coming against this idea that uh, our culture has really struggled with uh, ever since then. A couple of ideas of where he'd be more popular uh, popularly understood today is this idea of name recognition or name dropping. Uh, there's really only one name that we should, we should be dropping, and that's Jesus. But we're all tempted to drop names. We're all tempted to listen to certain people on the radio. We all have, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that. But if 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 what your source of information is to the exclusion of another, and it takes the place of Christ. That's where the issue is. That's where the problem lies. And that's what Paul was saying. Hey, quit dropping names. Don't drop my name. There's a variety of reasons that we can explore as to why these divisions were so dangerous in the church. I think they play out today just as well as they did then. But one, they make people feel isolated. That's not unifying. Uh, Two, it puts the emphasis in personal preference. Um, there's a funny balance there, I suppose. We all know that we have personal preference. When that personal preference is elevated above uh, keeping the church unified, 
uh, kind of becomes an issue. It creates subgroups in the church. Uh, there's nothing more dangerous in the church is when there's a subgroup. That's the reality of it. This church has gone through difficult times. Uh, Tammy and I came to this church in the midst of struggle. And I'm not, I don't shy away from talking about it. It is what it is. There was a whole subgroup. As we were coming, there was a whole subgroup that left this church. Now, many of you are brand, many of you are brand new to this church. Maybe you either have never heard it or you definitely didn't experience it. But there was a whole subgroup that I, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of sat over here or over somewhere. They all kind of sat together. They were all essentially the youth group and the youth leaders as we were just stepping into church here. They were all stepping out. Division creates subgroups. And when you have subgroups like that, 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 that you know, decide to go a different direction, and many of you experienced this way more in-depthly than I did here, it's painful. It's hard to see people leave. It's hard to not have an answer for the division. And, and we, we live with the scars of that. It erodes biblical authority. Division erodes biblical authority because eyes are on men rather than on the Lord. So division erodes biblical authority. It starts putting other things in the place of what the Bible clearly tells us uh, who's in charge. It puts things up there in authority like the bylaws. And whoever can wrangle the bylaws the best wins the argument or wins, you know, the contention. It puts biblical authority on people that aren't in a place of authority because their argument seems the best. It puts, it erodes biblical authority by putting, sometimes you have this play out in churches, uh, it puts a lot of pressure, and a lot of people start looking to those that give the most, but because without their big gifts, the church is going to fold financially. So it erodes true biblical authority and trust in who Christ is, because the pressure then is on somebody else, and what do they think? Well, and if that's what they think, then I need to go with them, because that's the best possible outcome, right? So it erodes biblical authority, Fractures relationship, we've talked a lot about that. Division fractures relationships. It limits, it limits in the local church good and healthy growth, both numbers-wise and spiritual depth of growth. Why does it do that? It does that, one, nobody wants to go to a church that's full of problems. little fact check for you, every church has problems. So let's just get that out of the way to start with, right? But if you know there's a church that it's in massive conflict, most people will say what? I'm not going there. If I want to hear people argue, I'll turn on the news about 7 o'clock at night. I can hear people argue all night long. So people won't go, and then those that are, are there, it limits their spiritual growth, because now all of their focus and energy is into trying to figure out how to address or what position to have or, or where do I stand on these issues? Where do I, what's my take on this division in the church? 
So all the focus is on either trying to heal it or trying to figure out what side you're on, who's going to survive, who's not going to survive, are we going to come, are we going to go, are we going to stay? <sighs> None of our focus is on the Lord. It's all on these worldly things. So it limits healthy growth. The last one, I think the one that Paul's probably speaking of the most, is it reflects poorly on who Christ is. Believers, we are to reflect Jesus to the world. That's our job. And when churches are in crisis, when they're in conflict and division, the outside world says, why do I want to be a part of that? Why would I go there? Why would I saddle up and, you know, they would say, why would I waste my time on a beautiful Sunday morning showing up at a place where people that say that they love one another don't love one another and aren't getting along. Why do I waste my time? I could be watching football. I could be watching baseball. I could be doing anything. So it reflects poorly on Christ. Division played out has a tendency to neutralize the gospel and the effectiveness of the message of the cross, which is where Paul takes them as a gospel solution to the issues of division, especially around these issues of leadership preference. Where he says in verse 17, if you look there, 1 Corinthians 17, says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, not that he didn't baptize, but he didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul's simply saying, hey, I baptized, but that wasn't, that wasn't the, the, the aim of my mission was not to just go dunk people in the water for no reason, right? I did it. I'm glad I didn't do it as much as, you know, maybe I did because you guys are all trying to identify with me because I, you know, baptized you or somebody else did. It wasn't the main mission, it was... A portion of it, but the main goal, he says this, to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Not with wisdom of man. Verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The power of God. Now, as I mentioned earlier in some of these subpoints, when it comes to division, the next one is power and wisdom. And, and he's trans, Paul is transitioning here between talking about leadership preference now to talking about who's the smartest. And that's where we're going to end up going next week. Because one of the things that's most divisive in the church circles around a lot of times those who are smart and those who aren't. <laughs> I hate to say it that way, but the reality is true. Those that think they have some special biblical wisdom or particular take or, you know, special thing, and, and you know, they identify as the, the minority. They identify as, you know, a remnant. They identify, you know, in a certain way that, that makes them look, you know, uh, like they really got something. And it's divisive in the church. It needs to be dealt with. Paul's simply saying as a gospel rebuttal, and as he switches into a different topic, which we won't pick up till next week, but he, 
talks about this idea of division in the church and personal preference and leadership, he says this, it's the gospel. Like, I came for the gospel. That was the reason I came. That was the reason God sent me. That's the reason I'm called. And it seems upside down. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. People that don't know Christ, you start talking about the, the, the gospel, you start talking about the cross, and they're like, what? Who are you talking about? What are you talking about? Who died? How did they die? Just want to talk about all that religious stuff? Is that what you're trying to convert me? Is that what you're doing? You know, they, they, People kind of have a tendency to take offense. It's foolishness to the people that aren't being saved for those who haven't trusted Christ. But to those who are <clears throat> those of us who are being saved, those of us that have trusted Christ, it's the power of God. The mission is to preach the gospel. And if we're relying on our own personal preferences and human wisdom to convey the gospel, we're going to miss it. The message of the cross won't have much of an effect. In fact, Paul says, for the unbeliever, it's foolishness. For those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Why, why is the cross so powerful? It's a question I want to kind of just let us linger as the worship team comes on up. We go to close out today. Why is, why is the message of the cross so powerful? What does, the power, what does God's power in that accomplish? One of the things that Paul's kind of alluding to is the fact that only the power of God can unite such a vast array of different people with different histories, backgrounds, experiences into one family. That's why, he says that, that's why he says it's so powerful. That's just one aspect. There's a lot of aspects to it that he's going to talk about. But it's one aspect. How, how, how do we bring together all these people with all these different historical, historical perspectives? How do we get the devout Jew who won't touch you know, a single chunk of bacon... How do we get that person to unite with somebody that grew up his whole life or her whole life in pagan worship and all they ate was bacon? How, how do you do that? Somebody for 1,500 years that, that thought that, that this is bad, this is wrong, God said so, can't touch it, can't do that, can't do and, and And that person comes to faith in Christ. And over here, somebody that, that ate meat, sacrificed to idols or whatever the case is, or whatever the history is, how, only, only the cross, Paul's saying, unifies that vast array of an array of people into one body. That's God's goal. That's the gospel message and Jesus saving people to come together in unity is a big thing to God. Very big thing to God. And it should be a big thing to us. Let's stand and worship together in our last song.